You're listening to a Flower Pop production. Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're good. And thank you so much for choosing the next chapter. And I'm so glad you did, because today I'm going to introduce you to the wonderful Susan Lewis. And it's so glamorous. I mean, it's unspeakably glamorous in the way it looks, the way that it operates. And George Clooney was my next door neighbour when I first arrived. Susan Lewis has written, wait for it, 50 books. Not only that, but 50 best-selling books which have been sold all around the world. But Susan's own story is worthy of its own novel. I'll let Susan tell you all about it, but let's just say it involved getting expelled from boarding school, a disastrous affair with one of the FBI's most wanted, and a near miss with George Clooney's pot-bellied pig. We talk about how working behind the scenes on television drama taught her her first lessons of novel writing and what happened when she accidentally deleted 600 pages of her book. Susan also tells us about finding love at 50, becoming a stepmum, and what it's really like to live in the French Riviera and Hollywood. We also talk about how life changed forever for Susan when she was just nine years old. Susan shows how next chapters can bring you just where you need to be. She's open, honest, funny and kind, and it's no wonder her books are enjoyed by so many. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Susan Lewis. Susan Lewis, well, I am just beyond thrilled to be able to welcome you to the next chapter. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to be doing this. Uh, And Susan, first of all, I have to thank you for writing so beautifully on your website, because normally I have to do lots of research. And you just wrote it so wonderfully. Um, So thank you. And we've got so much to discuss. I'm just going to get on with it. So as ever, we begin with the prologue. Now, your dad was a Welsh miner. He's also, I love this, a poet and an engineer. Um, And you, you grew up in Bristol, on the outskirts of Bristol. That's right, yes. A um, place called Kingswood. Um, it was in South Gloucestershire then. Actually, I think it still is. Um, so, but obviously, Bristol is the uh, big town. And uh, yeah, we grew up on um, a very sort of leafy, lovely council estate. I don't, I think it's still quite a nice council. Uh, well, it's not a council estate anymore, it's private now. But um, I think it's still quite nice, but rather changed from when I was there. But Yes, we were talking quite a long time ago. Yeah, Um, but but it's, I mean, it just, and you said that your mum, she was, you said she she was one of 13. At 20, I love this, she persuaded your dad to spend his bonus on an engagement ring instead of a motorbike. So she clearly sort of knew um, what she wanted in life. And you said that your, this lovely council house was her pride and joy. She absolutely adored it. Oh, she did. I think she used to clean. I think uh, she's probably not the only one. She used to clean as if getting ready for the queen to come for tea. Mm. So everything had to be spotless, including her little brass plaques of Elizabeth and Philip, which she used to (laughs) polish with her brasso every, well, probably every week, not every day. But uh, yeah, and um, polishing the front doorstep and Oh. Yeah, she was very house proud. Oh, how lovely. And you had a younger brother. You have a younger brother. And so um, so 
basically so she but she as much as she loved her house she had very much had a belief that you are all going to do do better you're going to do better in life um and so your dad uh, he was writing a book and you were signed up for ballet uh, piano elocution lessons so you were you know you were i mean and also a very hard working family well, I guess uh, I guess we were, and uh, yeah, she because you know my mum had grown up in really quite a lot of hardship. That many children, it was obviously difficult, and especially that many children in a very small house. Although they ranged greatly in age, of course, but um, I think yeah, she it was at a time back in the sixties when things were just beginning to happen for women and. She could see that there might be opportunities further along um, the road. And so that was when she decided that uh, we were just going to have a really good education and that she felt that was the route to everything. So that's when she took me to be um, uh, interviewed for Redmaid School, which was a bit hilarious, actually. Well, she found it hilarious uh, because it was so posh and creepy. And... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have. I don't know if you know this, but I have written a book called Just One More Day, and it's all about her, um, or mostly about her, and um, yeah, and how, uh, yeah, how out of place we were at that school when we went for the interview, went for the first interview. Um, but anyway, I, unbeknownst to me, so I took the exam, the entrance exam, and. Um, but unbeknownst to me, there were two places um, at the school uh, for boarders. Now, I was only ever going to go as a day girl. That's, it would have been a long bus journey, but that was because it's in Westbury on Trim. Um, but that was the plan. Uh, but unfortunately, then my mum died mm. and she had cancer. And, uh, and there were two places in the school for girls who's who had lost their mothers and but they had to board and my dad wanted me to board then anyway because he felt that I would get a better upbringing than if I was at home with him and my brother and his intention was that my brother then would go to probably QEH uh, so that we would continue with my mum's wish for us to have a really good education. Um, had she lived, that probably would have worked out, I guess it would have worked out. Um, but I kind of rebelled then. It, it was a difficult time, obviously, two small children losing their mother. I wasn't yet 10 and my brother wasn't yet six. So um, I... Uh, and then, you know, the next thing I know, I'm in a boarding school mm -hmm. and I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be at home with my dad. And I guess these were some of the first signs. Sure, there were plenty of others, but um, some of the first signs of my absolute determination, um, because no matter what, I was going to leave that school. I was going to go home and be with my dad. And, but he wouldn't have it. He wouldn't listen. No, this is best for you. So therefore, the whole family, and so calls everybody, backed him up. So I wrote to the school governors. I wrote to the Lord Mayor of Bristol. <laughs> and nobody was on my side. 
And then I wrote to the Queen and she didn't write back to me. <laughs> well, that was so, rude. I know, it was rude. I have a sneaky suspicion that my letters never got any further than the outbasket at the school, but there we are. Um, and uh, But I didn't know that at the time. And when I finally accepted I was not going to hear back from the Queen, I said, right, okay, going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to get expelled. And that's what I did. <laughs> oh, Susan. I Nightmare think... for my poor daddy. Oh, I guess. First of all, I, you know, but at nine to lose your mum, Susan. I'm so, I know it's many years ago, but even to talk about it, I'm sure it's, I mean, it's just such a trauma and, you know, awful thing to go through. When, when your mum took you for the interview, do you think, did she know that she was poorly then? Or did that just yeah. then, did she know? So do you think that was all part of it, that she was trying to set, set you up to, to be able to have this education she wanted for you with without her there or would she have taken you for the interview anyway I think oh no I think she would have taken me anyway because she was very determined we were going to have a good education but I think she well certainly by then she would have had a few rounds, rounds of chemotherapy she had been in and out of the general hospital um so she'd had a mastectomy you know so she had been sick for quite a long time mm. and uh whether or not she knew she was going to die at that point I don't know that was never discussed with me I did ask my dad once I remember asking him if she was going to die and he just said no 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 mm. uh, but by then I think it was coming near the end and he would have known mm. he, he would have known. um so yeah, I, and I don't know if they ever had any discussions about what he should do when she'd gone. He he never did tell me that. Um, but, you know, as I say, I was absolutely determined. I was going home. I was always a daddy's girl anyway, mm. and I was going to go home, be with my dad. I was going to take care of the house and them, you know, my dad, my brother, Um but of course, I was just completely off the rails by then, really. I, I was not, yeah, I was not a good teenager by any stretch. But, well, <laughs> well I mean, I, I'm, there, actually. Well, I'm just very curious. What did you do to get expelled? Are you allowed to reveal this, Susan? Oh, well, I mean, God, I'd never get expelled for it these days. Um, I took up smoking. Um, <laughs> I put, um, uh, and with another friend as well who didn't get expelled, um, we put powder paint in the hot water so it came out purple. We painted zebra crossings where they shouldn't be. And <laughs> I don't know, I mean, we just, we were just generally really naughty, really disruptive. And then uh, come the end, it was in February, just we didn't plan this well. We decided to run away. And uh, of course, we're only two 14 year old girls running across the downs. And we have five school uniforms. So we're wearing them all under this big cape. It was flipping freezing. Um, we didn't really know where we were going, but everybody in the school, that, all the boarders, you know, who it was Saturday night, had, um, we'd had a whip round. They'd had a whip round to finance our journey, wherever that was to be. And uh, but anyway, the police came and got us. Uh, so and we were transported back and I was expelled uh, as the ringleader, the uh, the bad influence uh, the following uh, 
the following day and, and <laughs> on the sunday where did the police find you were you still on the downs yeah oh <laughs> yeah. i think we probably weren't very far from your house actually you probably um, were yeah for anyone listening so the downs in bristol is very close so so in fairness you didn't get too far away they were on you the police they were on you but um yeah. So then you went back home and so well, you were probably obviously highly, highly delighted. And then you went back home to your dad and your brother. And did you go to carry on going to a local school then, a school nearby? I did. I went to um, a school called The Grange, which I think might recently have closed. Um, but it was all, you know, it was it all gone to pot by then, really, because it was my, the education standard was quite different. To be fair, Susan, as much as I'm sure your your dad was pulling his hair out, but that, I mean, that does show determination, what you did there. That is a lot of determination. Well, it was. But I do, I, I do find it still quite hard to think about what my dad went through at that time. Because mm. he never got over losing my mum, really, mm. never. Mm. And, and then he's got this real problem child on his hands. Uh, and obviously he was worried about my brother and whether I was going to be a bad influence on my brother, which fortunately I wasn't. Um, but yeah, we, we soldiered on, but I, and I had a lot of encouragement at school from teachers to stay on, do my, um, do my O and A levels and, you know, just, yeah, do as well as I could, but I never, just wasn't interested. I, I didn't really engage, um, and and so that was it. So I left. I left school as early as I could, and went went to work. Mm. Well, first of all, I, first of all, I stayed at home because I thought, you know, I would just look after my dad and brother, and I'd cook and clean and do all these things, but but. When that, my dad came home one night to find that I um, decided to wallpaper one of the um, the dining room, and he said, "No, no, you've got to go out to work. I'm not leaving you here on your own anymore. <laughs> You're ruining the house, um, and, and and also you can't cook." So, and I, I wasn't a very good cook, and actually, nor was he. So, oh. um, anyway, we we muddled through. Oh, he was worried you're going to put that purple powder or whatever in the water, or who knew what you were going to do next? Did, did your yeah, brother? Gonna... Did your brother go to QEH, which is another no, private school? No, I think my dad was done with it then. He mm. just thought, you know, it had been, uh, it just hadn't worked out for me, so he wasn't going to um, try and split us up as a family again. He accepted that. I, I think he was uncomfortable with me growing up without a mother, without a female influence. He wanted that. Um, but it, it, in the end, he decided it was best just to keep me at home. He, they, I think the educational authorities at that time, they offered me other places further from home so that I wouldn't see my dad as often because they wondered if that was why I wouldn't settle because I was seeing him every week. But he, uh, fortunately, he put his foot down about that and said, you know, that, that's not going to work. Mm. And I'm sending her even further away. Mm. So, yeah. So I um, stayed at the Grange until I, till the, the earliest possible moment I could leave, which I did. Then I kind of got sacked by my dad and sent out to work. <laughs> 
<laughs> and is that uh, and is that then? I mean, to be fair though, Susan, to uh, to what you went through, you know, and this is I'm, I'm no psychologist, but to you had so much to deal with, and then to be leave your family home, I can understand that. I have, um, and I think now of my dad and my brothers, I would have just wanted to get back there. You know, it was your safety net and your, so I can, I can really un- understand. And you, and you didn't know you were a teenager. You think you know everything and we don't do we at that age. That's the thing. Um, so did you then, is that when you got your job at HTV? Uh, yeah, just soon after. I did a couple of years sort of temping and doing one thing or another. And then I got, um, as a temp, I got a job at HTV in the newsroom um, and I was a copy taker. I mean, such a position no longer exists, of course, uh, but it was good fun. You know, I used to sort of, I was, one thing I did learn at school that became incredibly useful for me was how to type. Um, and I wasn't a bad typist either. I was sort of quite fast. And, and this, was, this, was all, this was also in the days when the typewriters were manual um, I think we did graduate onto an electric typewriter eventually. But, you know, I could put on the headphones. You know, people would ring in with their stories from all over the West Country. Um, and and I'd just type out their stories and put them into the in-tray for the news desk. Uh, so I kind of got to know what was going on uh, around the West Country. And that wonderful, vibrant, hilarious sort of atmosphere and, and really sort of pressure cooker atmosphere of a newsroom. Mm. Um, and there were quite of, well, there were a few people there who went on to become big national names like Brent Sadler and Ken Reese and Graham Miller and um, Graham Adicott. Um, um, and, and then I knew them all then when I moved to London as well. So... Uh, yeah, so then, because so you were there for about three years, and I mean, I think you were, I think you were probably in the same office that I work in now, because I'm not sure how much that newsroom has ever changed. I know it was sort of spread around, but I mean, yeah. it, it is, it's full of, it's, it is a wonderful place, and I, I still think it is, but anyway, that's another story. But um, so then you move at 22, sorry, you moved to London to work for Thames, and you worked there as a secretary, and is that right? Are you? Oh, but you would then get move more into entertainment. Well, initially, I was a secretary at um, in current affairs, so I worked on a program called TVI, which um, was uh, it's kind of uh, it was a panorama type program, really. Um, and I I worked there for a year, and then I moved to the newsroom at Thames News. Uh, and then I trained to be a production assistant. And that's then when I went into entertainment. So, uh, well, more drama than entertainment. I did a, some training. I did a little bit of training in light entertainment on the Benny Hill show. Um, <laughs> and then I moved into drama. And I was still training when I moved into drama. So I didn't have an all-round training like most people do get. Um so I, I mean, I did take programs live on air, I think successfully, um, but uh, you know, drama was really more my thing then. And at my first drama, I, mean, I was training, was with Morecambe and Wise. By then, they had moved to ITV, mm. so I they did a, a film at Thames called Night Train to Murder which was absolutely terrible. In fact, <laughs> I remember that 
Eric said that this film will be shown over my dead body. He hated it. Uh, but it was wonderful working with them. Mm. He, he was just great. I mean, he had such an easy and warm and, and welcoming way with him. Ernie was a little more, um, he was just quieter, really, but very funny in his own way. Um, and Eric would often be said, you know, I'm going to be found out one of these days. I know I'm going to be found out. This is all nonsense. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I had a lovely time working with them. And then I went on to do other dramas. Mm. And the last drama I did was The Bill. Oh, yeah. And I was working on The Bill when I was writing my first books. Okay. Okay. So before we go on to that, so just going back, first of all, Susan, a production assistant, because I know with all these names, they're all, they all sometimes mean different things. What did that, what does that mean, a production assistant? What were you actually doing? Were you doing the counting then, the actual, like what we call the PAing? Is that what, what you were doing in terms yeah. of the timing? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what PA stands for, or it used to when yeah. I was doing it, production assistant. So basically it's, um, you know, when you're looking in a production gallery and you have the director in the middle, the visual mixer on one side and the uh, PA on the other. And so, yeah, you count the programs in, you count them out, uh, or in, use inserts in and out, etc. That sort of thing. Um, that's in new drama. It's a different thing. Um, you, because you're working hand in glove with the director, and you, you're just there from the very beginning to the very end. So from the casting to the dubbing and transmission, basically. So you're, uh, you know, at that time, I don't know how drama's done anymore, but at that time, the production assistant was responsible for continuity when we were filming. So time coding and uh, continuity. So the time coding being that where each scene was on the tape. Um, and continuity, I guess you know continuity, you know, who's walking through the door at what, you know, who walks through in what order, who picks up a glass on what line, that sort of thing. I was absolutely rubbish, I said. <laughs> I thought I was quite good until afterwards I was told I was rubbish and I'm oh, looking no. back, yeah, I was rubbish. Who said you were uh, rubbish, Susan? Now, why would uh, they say I, that? Look, do you know what, actually? It was somebody who didn't even work in drama. Well, there so, you go. That was a bit mean, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, they were just, um, yeah, that's not. But right. anyway, I mean, by then I, I was getting much more interested in the scripts, and I wanted to. I, I was, I was very. I, I when I was doing the bill and the series before that, I was doing um, an afternoon drama, and I, I did get very involved with the scripts then, and I would edit them myself and then put the, put it to the script editor and who was great. You know, he was very, very supportive and the director. Um, and then I would go into the edit, the visual edit, um, and get involved in that as well. And I, so I really enjoyed putting the stories together. And this was definitely my training ground, without doubt. You know, when I learned about continuity and makeup and lighting and costume, all these things that go into a novel, you know, to paint a picture. Mm. And I was learning all of that as I was working on drama and TV. Mm. Um, and, you know, most importantly, well, very importantly, uh, dialogue. Mm, and I'm comfortable writing dialogue. I like writing dialogue. Mm, mm. Well, uh, we're going to 
we're going to come on to that. Before we do, soon, before we finish this chapter, I have to ask this, what was Benny Hill like? Uh, he was very quiet. Um, he, as you well know, that all the sex scandals from around about that time, and his name has never come out. And, and I'm not surprised. He was just a really nice, very quiet man. Mm. Had an apartment next to, well, very close to the Teddington Studios. Um, and I don't know anything about him, really, other than, I mean, it was just hilarious sometimes, you know, you'd be on the set and... Uh, and he'd be having a very serious conversation with the director and he'd be standing there dressed as a really weird kind of Superman or something and, <laughs> and, and they were all taking it very seriously. Um, but I remember him being, uh, he had a particular floor manager that he worked with all the time called Fizz and he was really fond of her. And when she was leaving to go to Australia, um, he bought her a a club class ticket to go with. He was just so generous, and that was his way of saying thank you. Mm, wow. uh, so, no, he he was, and I'm so glad that his reputation has not been tarnished by anybody. Mm. When I say tarnished, you know, if he had been guilty, any of those who are guilty deserve that, but he was not one of them, mm. thankfully. Mm. What an experience, though. And like you say, little did you know, was setting you very up, much up for your, your next chapter. So so as I understand it, so you went into, is it like a controller's um, office and basically said you want to write drama? And he said, well, go away and write something. Well, I did. I said I wanted to produce drama. So I, I wasn't thinking about being a writer then. Uh, he, I said basically what do I have to do to become a producer and he said oh, well go away and write something most producers write which obviously is rubbish they don't uh, but this was just to get me out of his office but I took him at his word wow. so off I went and wrote that's amazing and, uh, I know uh, and I did so I wrote myself out of telly into publishing which was not my intention but that's what happened wow so so what did you do I mean literally that I mean that's just incredible Susan that if he hadn't have said that I mean things could have been so different just him saying that if you say to get you out of your office but that was like a, oh that was a sign Susan that was a sign and <laughs> and so 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 did you just just go and just start writing did you literally just go to a typewriter mm -hmm. did you do it by typewriter and did you have any idea how to write a book obviously I imagine you were a good reader but did you like reading books you know how did you even know where to begin uh, well back at that time I wrote by hand by pencil um, and I a lot of my friends in Bristol, which I still had a lot of friends in Bristol, were working on a series called Robin of Sherwood. Oh, yeah. And occasionally when I visited, you know, I would go onto the set. And I just thought, God, how much I would love to work on a production like that. So, well, maybe, maybe I should write one because I'm obviously not going to go back to Bristol. <laughs> and now I've been told to write, maybe I should write one. So that's what I did. No, I didn't write Robin of Sherwood, of course, but um, that's why I started writing, uh, was I want, I, I did write a children's advent, uh, um, kind of adventure story all set in Cornwall. And, and then somebody at Thames showed me, they had a BBC computer and they showed word processor basically. And they showed me how to use it. So, 
I was able to get it all onto a word processor. But I, I kept getting stuck. I was, could see the stories, but I, I wasn't really getting them down well enough. So I spoke to the creative director at Thames Television, who'd written books himself, and asked his advice. And he read it. He said, oh, this is easy. He said, all you need to do is take it out of the present tense and put it into the past tense and you will find it comes alive for you and he was so right because of course I was so used to working in the present tense working Mm. with scripts um and it's not to say I haven't written in the present tense since but it is much easier to write in the past tense Mm. or I find it so and that was some of the best advice I ever had because then it all just started to happen and I wrote this book and I um a friend of mine who's a producer on Thames News, she knew a literary agent, so she put me in touch with him. And uh, and then I got a call one morning from the literary agent to ask if we could meet. Wow. I was just so stunned, you know. Uh, oh, God, this is amazing. Can I meet the proper literary agent? Yeah. So along I, I bought a hat, actually. This was back in the 80s, I thought, you know, it was in those days of dynasty or dynasty or whatever, um, with big padded shoulders and hats and stuff. And I, I looked an absolute trap, of course, walked along to uh, go. Went, he was in South Kensington, so I went to meet him. And he... Well, he he gave the book to a few publishers, and then, but I'd got the bug by then, so I carried on writing. And by the time I had finished the next book, I was I was ready to present the next book because I felt then this was a class apart, and I thought, I think this is what I'm going to write. But I was still working in telly, but and I had written this uh, novel, and then he. Uh, I don't know how many rejections he got for the children's adventure book. I I still don't know. Um, But I'm sure he got some. I don't think it just sat there on the back burner doing nothing. He he would have submitted it. Uh, But then uh, he got two publishers interested in a class apart. And we went with um, HarperCollins. And they published my first book. And my second, no, they, you know, they published my first book, but then I moved from HarperCollins to Random House, um, who published my second book and all my books until um, 2016, when I went back to HarperCollins, funnily enough. Um, but I, I, it was when I was writing my third book, that, and I was doing, uh, about to start filming some episodes of The Bill, so I was all getting ready. We were a week away from it. And I got home on a Monday evening, having things were more or less in place, ready for shooting. So I got home on Monday evening to carry on writing the book. And by now, I was a long way in. I was just going to be writing the last chapter. Uh, and I had an Amstrad computer, one of the early Amstrads. And I formatted a new disk. Well, you have to format it on both sides in, at that time. You know, there was no hard drive um, ready to write. And then I realized I had formatted the disc that was full. So I had erased my entire book. 
Oh, no. I mean, all 600 pages of it, gone. Oh, my goodness, Susan, Mm. awful. I know, I know. I'm very careful about backups now, (laughs) even all these years later. What did you do? What did you do? Did you cry? Well, do you know, the first thing I did was I carried on writing. Like, it was like I went into denial. Yeah. I just, I carried on writing for about 15 minutes. Oh. This isn't real. I'll work this out in a minute how this really hasn't happened but then somebody came from random house to look at the computer and and it was decided you know there was no retrieving anything um so i rang my head of department at thames and told her what had happened and i said i'm gonna need to because i was under contract uh i'm gonna need to rewrite the book she said well just leave it with me and she came back to me the next day and said okay i've talked to the powers that be and they have we have decided that you can leave now um and but we'll keep your job open so you won't be paid but we'll keep your job open until you've redone the book and uh, and then we'll get somebody in to cover the filming for the bill so that was what they did which was extraordinary i mean i when i think back now how lucky that was that because it helped ease me into the uh, being at home all the time, not being part of a team anymore, just being a full-time writer. Now, I was, of course, full on as a full-time writer then because I was having to recreate this book, mm. uh, which I did. And, of course, it's a much better book than it was the first time I wrote it. Mm. <laughs> But hang on, Susan. So there's so much here that this. I mean, it's all amazing. So just hang on. Just going back. So class apart. That was that your. That was your second book that you'd written. It was the second one I'd written, but it was the first one to be published. First one to be published. And that was that. That was still more like the family drama and suspense that you're so well known for. Yeah, I guess um, it was very sexy. Oh. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, this was the 80s, remember? Yeah. It was all about bonk busters. It was a Jimmy so, Cooper. It was all, you know. Um, four career women, basically, yeah. and a murder. Yeah. Uh, okay. And uh, so I haven't read that book in a long time. I wonder what um, I would think of it now. But it's, yeah, it was, and then I had another book published called um, Dance While You Can, which was completely different. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, about um, a young woman who goes to be a matron at a boys' school, falls in love with one of the boys, mm. who, and of course, their relationship is um, just totally forbidden, and she is sent away. And uh, anyway, it's a, it's very much a love story over the years, over the decades, when they meet up again and it doesn't work, and people still trying to pull them apart. And they have very different lives. Um, that one, I think that one really kind of set me on the map, actually, that a lot of people, weirdly, I mean, lovely, lovely, uh, still read it. They read it over and over. Mm. And, and and that always touches me to think that they want to read it more than once and mm. have done several times mm. over the years. Um, so those two were published, and it was Stolen Beginnings, ironic title, um, that I lost on the computer. Mm. That was my third book. 
Oh, goodness me. And so and when you got when your agent told you that you were going to be published, how did you find that out? And how did you feel? Because I mean, Susan, I mean, I know, I mean, I'm 10 years in and I've been writing to agents for all those years. So I know how hard it is. And then to have that and have that there like that. I mean, how did that feel? Did you wear a hat? <laughs> Should have done, shouldn't I? Yes. Oh, no, I probably went out and got pissed. Sorry. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> you know, even better. I think I expect, you know, we um, opened champagne. It's a long time ago. I can't really remember. I do remember sort of panicking a bit about the money, and it really wasn't very much. Um, but thinking, oh, God, what am I going to do with all that money? Um, uh, will I start taking drugs or uh, all these <laughs> things well um, I can understand uh, the concern after the beginning bit but you're okay yeah. by that now yeah no that's all gone uh no well I know I never did take drugs but um no it was I guess it, it was very exciting um and I my I, I was really really happy to be able to tell my dad uh he, my brother read my first book and advised my dad he, he probably ought not um, because of the sex. Um, but then my dad did read the second one, uh, Dance Where You Can. And he, he said he loved it. He'd, I don't know, I expect he blushed a few times, uh, quite a few times, um, and probably felt horrified that I would know anything like this sort of stuff I was writing about. But... Uh, he yeah he said he he loved it but and then he died after my second book so um i so those were the, so at least he had seen me published which was really nice because yeah. he had tried several times to be published and that hadn't worked out mm. so he had seen that i mean and his advice to me his caution was always oh don't let it you know don't get carried away now don't get carried away with yourself you don't know how long this is going to last mm. um and you know he's he was right. I mean, you don't know how long it's going to last, and some people do, and a lot of people, I guess, do just write one or two books, and then that's it. Mm. Um, and I had no idea at that time how things were going to pan out for me. Um, but then, by the time I lost the book, I I was earning more because both of my first books had been successful, and and I was able to deal better with giving up working in tv although i missed it like mad mm. uh, especially at times you know at the end of the day when you finish work you've got nobody to go for a drink with when christmas comes around you're not part of the christmas parties because you're not part of a team anymore so those times are quite difficult quite lonely being a writer but most of the time you're in it, you know, you are wherever you're writing about, or I am, I was, um, and I'm sure that's the same for most writers. So I don't feel the solitariness of it as I'm working through the day. It was uh, only at the end of the day. But then, you know, it enabled me to do things that I just wouldn't have done otherwise, like buy my first house in France. And yeah, well, we, because we, we get, I'm going to, I don't always do this, Susan, but I'm going to allow you a next, next chapter because you've got so many. Um, this is amazing. <laughs> but can I just ask, was your, before your dad died, did he stay in Bristol? Was your brother in Bristol? And what did your brother yeah. do? Yeah, no, my dad stayed, well, he was still living in the same house that we grew up in. That mm. was where he died. And, um, and my brother still lives in Bristol. Yeah. Mm. 
Did he ever go into writing or anything like that? No, no, uh, it's never really interested him. Um, he's uh, no, he's married with two children, mm. my niece and nephew. Well, his children, my niece and nephew. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and they uh, and so the whole family live in Bristol. Oh, that's lovely. Well, that is very lovely. So, you, yeah. but, but you decided to leave. So obviously, you were still living in London at this stage. I, I'm guessing. Yes, and then, so you yeah. decide. I love this in your own words. You decide to do the novelist thing and buy a house in France with a swimming pool. I mean, why wouldn't you, Susan? That is just exactly <laughs> what you should do. And you did that. And I'm glad you think so, because it just seemed to make so much sense to me. It does me as well. It absolutely <laughs> yeah. does me. So off you went and you said it was all amazing. It was all bliss until you had an, a, a disastrous affair with one of FBI's most wanted. And then you also discovered that in the winter as such, it wasn't quite so blissful as you may hope for. <laughs> it does sound a bit like a book that season. Well, I guess it was. I mean, I, and I think I probably saw it a bit like that when I was there, which is how I came to allow myself to be involved with somebody who was effectively on the run. Um, and uh, I, I did find, it, I did not speak French as well as I thought. I did make quite a few friends when I was there, but they were all English speaking. Um, I didn't find the French terribly welcoming at that time. This was back in the 90s. Um, but that could have had a lot to do with me not speaking the language well enough, and I'm sure it did. Um, I, I, my dad hadn't long died either, and I think I was still not in a very good place over that. And I was getting wild again, like I was after my mother died. And, and that was how, when I found out about uh, one of the FBI's most wanted, it all sounded rather glamorous. <laughs> Uh, and, and in some ways, you know, he was leading a very glamorous life. I got to know about him because of some neighbours who worked for him. They would take his fake passports to wherever he was and arrange flights for him to go. So there were huge amounts of money involved. Um, it was all, uh, I think, cannabis smuggling. If there are any other drugs, I don't know. But, um, but it was all about their job was very focused on keeping him out of prison so that was how I met him um and I had had a, by then quite a string of disastrous relationships I was quite good at them really I'm good at finding disastrous relationships and now I was about to really top you know better <laughs> even myself here yeah. um well that was a, uh, that was a that was a headliner isn't it that FBI's most wanted yeah well, exactly. And, and it's like, so I was intrigued because obviously as a novelist, I thought, I wonder if there is a story. And then I could see myself as some kind of romancing the stone character and going off on adventures with him. Yeah. Um, but the next thing I knew, he'd given himself up. Uh. I mean, you could laugh, really. This is the length some people will go to to get away from me. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, he... He actually had given himself up because his brother had already been arrested, was in prison, and um, and the deal was that his brother's sentence would not be as long if he gave himself up. So that's what he did. And then there's this funny little story about how, you know, he'd been on the run for I don't know how many years. Um, he was in Brussels when he gave himself up, and they flew him. There was an FBI agent, DEA and probably a lawyer, I think. And they all flew over to Seattle. And they got to Seattle uh, 
the immigration department wouldn't let him in because he didn't have a passport. So for all these years, they've been chasing him. And now the immigration department won't let him in. So, <laughs> um, so that was, uh, I mean, obviously that got sorted out. And then the next thing, he was in prison. And it, was was, all, um, it was all meant to be, Susan, and it helped feed into your novels. You had this amazing ex- experience with it all. I think, And then may, maybe you got, sort of showed him getting on the straight and narrow again. It was your way of bringing the rebellion back round, maybe, maybe. Yeah. But then, so you left France... And of course you did, because then you went to California, went to Hollywood. Mm. I mean, I amazing. So there you were. So you decided to go there. And you said you, that you wooed sort of the film producers and you were, you know, you looked at that. But then you decided that actually wasn't a world for you. And then you decided you were going to have some lovely party times as well. And again, why wouldn't you, Susan? Why wouldn't you? Well, I I mean, honestly, I was lucky enough that I was being published. So I didn't have to rely on... Hollywood for an income um, and I mean there is a reason it's known as the boulevard of broken dreams because god knows enough people's dreams are broken there and and I thought when I went that Hollywood was probably just waiting for me well of course it was not uh, there's so much talent there and so much unrecognized talent um, and it's a very vibrant exciting unique kind of place and and I was Really, I think, really lucky to have lived there as long as I did. Um, and I was there for seven years and I made some great friends. It was very different to being in France because the Californians, the Americans, very welcoming towards the Brits, French less so, particularly back at that time. Um, so it was lovely to be in a place where I felt wanted. Mm. Um, and and it's so glamorous. I mean, it's unspeakably glamorous in the way it looks, the way that it operates. And so, you know, there's always something going on, some premiere, some party, some, you know. And then, and George Clooney was my next door neighbour when I first arrived. I mean, you said, uh, I mean, you were really in the heart of it. Jennifer Aniston, Julianne Moore, you were, I mean, you were right, you were living right in the heart of it all. Yeah. Well, you, I, when I was first there and I, like, we would go to Starbucks or something and, and you see the people and think, God, that looks just like Annette Benning. And then you realize it is Annette Benning wow. or, oh my God, he looks just like Rod Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. That's Rod Stewart. You, it, it's because that's where so many of them live. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of get to a place then where you stop thinking, oh, that looks like and you think that is. Yeah. Um, and it usually was. Yeah. Well, did mm-hmm. you speak to George Clooney as your neighbour? Did you sort of over the fence? Well, no, I, um, we had quite a funny experience when I was taking the dogs for a walk. I had two dogs called Casanova and Floozy. And there, um, one of our walks took us up behind George's house into Iredell Canyon. And he, this was back in the time when he had a pot-bellied pig. And uh, it was quite well-known around the world because everything he did was well known around the world that he had this pot bellied pig. Uh, anyway, we're going back one day and I don't know if Casanova got this whiff of this pig or something, but suddenly he'd gone. He was under the hedges, under the bushes and into George Clooney's garden wow. grounds. Um, I suppose in search of the pig. And so next thing I'm in there under the head shouting Casanova at the top of my voice into George <laughs> Clooney's property. What an idiot. Oh, um, wow. Anyway, fortunately, he came back, the dog, sadly, the dog, not George. Um, 
Um, and I wondered if um, I might have got a paternity suit at some point yeah. if he had found the pack big. But no, I did meet George Clooney, actually, but I didn't meet him that way. I And only briefly, I was at a screening. Wow. And he's as gorgeous, you know. Yeah. And, as he seems yeah god to be living next door i'd be so worried you know i'd be if you go out and you're in the garden you know in your gym jams and there's george Clooney next door with his pig yeah. i reckon he uh, saw you susan he was just shy he was just shy that day he was but yeah, i mean uh, th there's not <laughs> many conversations i've had on the i've had a lot of conversations on the next chapter but to have benny hill morecambe and wise george Clooney, his pig i mean that's amazing that is amazing but so you stayed there as you say for seven years then you decided, you know what, it's time to come back. So you came to Wiltshire, but then you, as you said, you just um, swapped your glamorous shoes for your wellies. But then some lovely, it sounded lovely, like cosy nights in by the fire. But then you decided, you know what, this isn't for you. So you went back to France. I did. Yeah, I did. And, it, and I really did enjoy the uh, year or so that I was in Wiltshire. But by then, I had got out of the groove of being British, of being, um, uh, uh, not of being, I mean, I had become an expat. I had been an expat for a long time. And then, and it's very hard to come back because things have moved on and people have moved on. Mm. And it was quite difficult to catch up. And, and I didn't feel right. I didn't, and then I realized I, I felt right about giving it another try in France. So I did. And it was actually much more successful. I think things were very different. The, um, you know, 9-11 had happened by then, well, long before that. But um, so the French were looking, they'd lost a lot of tourism after that, obviously, and they were dependent more on the British and, um, and the rest of Europe. And their doors seemed to open. That's how it seemed to me when I went back, that the doors really seemed to open. And it was, yeah, they were much more receptive. And I enjoyed, I did enjoy living there for the second time. Mm. Where were you then, Susan? Uh, I was back in the same sort of region. I was um, on the Riviera mm. or, or just inland. I was in a village or, or on the edge of a village called Tourette-Zulu. Uh, which is, if for anybody who knows the south of France, it's very near um, Saint Paul de Vence, mm. um, uh, overlooks Antibes, mm. um, and you will fly into Nice if you're going in and out of there. Um, so yeah, so I had a lovely house with a beautiful view of the Mediterranean, mm. um, and this gorgeous um, uh, perched village, medieval perched village, uh, which is in itself a bit of a tourist destination. Um, so yeah, I really did enjoy uh, living there, and I met more people, made more friends, which was great. Uh, and but by then, you know, I was getting on, and I and I'd never been married, and I definitely was never going to have children because, you know, I was too old by then. Um, and so I I tried something which I had heard about. I think Noel Edmonds, I heard Noel Edmonds talk about it. And I thought, oh, well, what a load of that is, but I'll give it a go. Um, called Cosmic Ordering. So I decided what I wanted. I wrote it down and put it in a drawer in my desk. And what do you know? So I had written down that I wanted to meet somebody um, 
who was probably about the same age as me, so like-minded, that sort of thing, like most of us would. Uh, but somebody who would be happy to have a relationship that took place over the weekend in the south of France and not during the week. <laughs> um, I'm sure enough. I met James. Oh, I love this. I mean, this is a proper true life romance. So you, so this was just, was it just after your 50th birthday? It was three months, was it after, before, after? Yeah, so ah. you, and these were your lovely friends. And I love this story that, that they had been, that you'd known going back to, to the HTV days, but you had, they, yeah. they used to talk about James and yeah. you just heard of him, didn't you? And little did you know, he would become your James. Well, exactly. I mean, I, when they talked about him, they one of them was a the director, the other one was a producer, and he was their boss. And um, they they were usually moaning about him because they wouldn't he wouldn't give them big enough budgets or enough time to edit or whatever. Um, I, just, just as most people in his position are usually moaned about. So I knew of him because they were often talking about him. And then one day. It occurred to my best friend, Denise, that maybe he and I would get along. And, but she didn't socialize with him. She, so she didn't know how to bring this about, but uh, his marriage had broken up by then, by the way. But, um, and so he was living uh, alone. He, and so my other friend, she had no problem at all. She said, well, I'll invite him out. She said, I, my birthday's coming up. Um, let's go out, the four of us, for dinner. Uh, so that's what we did. Uh, we went to the Mud Dock. You know the Mud Dock yeah. in Bristol, right? And, um, yeah, so the four of us went to the Mud Dock and drank four bottles of rosé wine. Love it. <laughs> Love it. And, and sure enough, for the next two years, James commuted up and down to France. He was working at ITV during the week. He'd come to France for the weekend. Or I would come to uh, Bristol or we would meet somewhere. Um, so for the first couple of years of our relationship, that's um, how we did it. And of course, it helped enormously when I came to meet the boys, um, when James brought them to France, because it was just lovely to have somebody who lived in France mm. with dogs. Mm. They, were so, they were so excited. They loved, they loved that. So mm. that really helped break the ice with them. And how, so old, were, how old were they then, Susan? Uh, so when we met, um, they were 10 and 13. Wow, wow. But I mean, that's that's really something because A, Noel Edmonds, it turned out, was right then with the cosmic ordering. So I might put a little note in my drawer later. Um, yeah. Not that much. I mean, I've done husband. it many times since and it is a little. Oh, it was I'll, just that one it time. It worked for me on that occasion. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. yeah, I did want to point out, I'm not going to say I need to find a new husband. It was more to do with other. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> um, but. That's, I mean, that's amazing. But then, I mean, because you, you'd lived, you've done, you had done so much and lived in so many um, places. And then to meet James and then, I mean, that was such a different life. And then children of that age, but it just all, it just all fell together, didn't it? Well, I think what was lovely about it is I really did feel ready to have a relationship then. Whereas, and I hadn't quite realised it before, but I hadn't been, I I didn't really want to be a mother. I th I thought it was something I should do, I was supposed to do, but it didn't happen and I wasn't worried about it not happening. 
Um, but I absolutely love being a stepmother. I really do. And I, and a part of that is because they've got a mother. They don't need another mother. But I have a different sort of role that I play in their lives. I'm like their mate, really. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, that's how I like to see it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we all get along and always have got along really, really well. Um, as I say, I don't in any way try to interfere with the relationship with their mother. or um, And they obviously love their mother and and, and their father. So... And James is a very hands-on dad. So one of them, the youngest, he did live here with us for a while before he went to university. Um, so, yeah, it was a complete life change, which weirdly brought me back to Bristol, mm. or near Bristol anyway, which I hadn't ever anticipated doing. But I'm quite happy to have done it because, of course, my best friends are here and my family, and now, obviously, James and the boys um so yeah so that kind of worked out when i uh when i was 50 so yes finding love at 50 can happen yeah it i that's a whole different podcast and next chapter but i mean how amazing and look those years ago when you were running across the downs running away you didn't know where you're going to be and here you are in bristol with this it's just you know so amazing and you know we have we've got we've come away from the books and we move on now to your to be continued but we you know you are extremely modest susan because 50 books i mean i mean i just cannot get my head around it 50 books and you know they're they're all bestsellers they're all best i mean it's incredible susan i mean for your to be continued what would you like to do next or or would you just like to keep doing doing your writing as you are and living in these amazing worlds um well i do enjoy i do enjoy the time when i'm kind of um left alone to write Mm -hmm. um because the business of being published can sometimes be um i i feel that i i'm not very good at it i'm not really very good at publicity and um uh that sort of thing and but and i don't like editing but i don't think anybody likes editing um so next for me i would absolutely well i will i still got a contract so i've got a more books to write um but i would absolutely love to see one of my books televised Mm. that that would be next it's a lot of books and a lot of them would work very well for the screen. And I think what has not helped over the years is the way that they've been published, uh, yeah, well, the way they've been published, um, packaged for a female readership, mm. that it's, it can be off-putting for somebody who doesn't want to read female fiction because it's not necessarily female fiction, you know, because I have a series about investigative journalists mm. Um, and I really enjoyed writing that. And that's a series of four books. I wrote them when I was in LA, actually, although they are mostly set in Britain. Um, and then and I have a series of books called um, that starts with the book No Child of Mine, which is about um, uh, a social worker discovering um, child abuse and trying to get the child out. And, and then it's about fostering. There, there are three books altogether. Uh, in that series I'm probably proudest of that series of all the books I've written Um, so I'd love to see something like that televised or um, a book that has come out recently 
that has done incredibly well and continues for some reason to sell incredibly well called I Have Something to Tell You. And that's set in Bristol, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bristol and around Chipping Sobbury, Gloucestershire. Um, and that is, it's a story about a lawyer uh, who is defending a man who has been charged with murdering his wife. He's not yet stood trial, but she thinks, the police are convinced he did it, but she is not. So she goes into investigating what actually happened. Mm. Um, and that was, I really enjoyed writing that book, actually. Mm. That was a great one. And it's been lovely to see how it's sold. So, mm. so yeah, next for me, I would like it to be televised. Mm. Um, and that would um, take you back, especially, again, it's especially special for you going back to your television days but also in today's world with so much they do need some good content and they do need this so you would think that that is very doable well I would like to think it was I mean I know somebody is looking into dramatizing that particular book at the moment but you know you can imagine I've written that many books and I've been in that many situations I've heard that so many times mm. um so I will just believe it when I see it mm. uh, and when I, and that sounds sort of skeptical, cynical, I, I don't mean it necessary to be like that. But I, what I mean is I'm not going to hold my breath and say, oh, God, isn't this exciting? This is going to happen. This might happen. I did a lot of that when I was in L.A. <laughs> and I got through a lot of champagne before I realised that it was really just about the champagne now. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I always love champagne. Maybe you should just do one more of those little notes in the drawer, Susan. One more. You never know. It could, it yeah, no, well, that's it. I, I, well, in. have I written a note about that? No, no, you're well, Come on, I have. Come on, Susan. So that's what, that's what you haven't done. You wait, and then and then we're going to drink some rosé at the mud dock. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. And, yeah. and um, do you, before we, I mean, I am very conscious of your time. Do you, do you still enjoy writing? Do you like the routine uh, and the, the rhythm of writing that I know you do sort of every day? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I had a couple of years recently when I didn't enjoy it so much, but I just had a difficult time otherwise. And uh, in my personal life and in, you know, I'd had an accident. I wasn't physically as um, uh, as able to do things and my dogs had died and, and, and I was very upset about that. And uh, and so I could, and of course I'd come through, like everybody had come through the pandemic, and I think so many of us were in just a weird place during that time. And I did find it quite hard to write during the pandemic, strangely, because of course I'm very used to working at home. Mm. Um, so, but now I feel like I'm really properly back on it. And uh, I, I've just finished a book um, a month or so ago and I've just started a new one uh, last week so and I'm enjoying it you know as I say you know the process now of structuring which I've done um, uh, I've mapped out the structure now for this book and then the process of putting it onto the page and seeing your structure fall apart but never mind um, and then putting it all onto the page I enjoy that yeah mm -hmm. I do uh, and if I didn't it would be a great shame because i don't know what i would do no. but i mean the best thing of all actually of course is the fact that people still want to read my books yeah bloody amazing but i'm so glad well but it's magical and it must be something to do with the fact that you love love doing it and then people love reading it and that's the secret formula isn't it of of all next chapters um it, it seems it's just amazing it's just amazing so for your own acknowledgement susan who would you like to thank who are the people who have helped you along the way 
Oh, right. Um, well, is the, definitely both my agents, that would be the one who I first met when I was wearing a hat. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was just a, a wonderful, wonderful man who died not um, back in, I think, 2014-2015 and he was my agent virtually the whole time that I was writing and now definitely my agent Luigi who um, yeah he he has just a fabulous way with him he's very very supportive Um, my husband who is so long-suffering and very um, understanding of when I just need to get on with it and uh, and don't really want to involve myself much in anything else. And he's fantastic in that he will, because he's kind of retired now anyway, but he, if I go anywhere for research, which I did recently, I went to Sicily twice, he comes with me. So always nice to have him along, have his support, like I'm talking through my best friends who um, have always just been there for me, my family. Yeah. How lovely. And now you have said that, I'll think about 20 other people once we finish. But yeah. yeah. Well, the lovely the, best friends who introduce you to James, I mean, that's just lovely. And But also that's uh, nice. I mean, that's 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 not a bad thing to have to do to go away and do trips like that and research. But that is how, how lovely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's great. Like, yeah. But that's the first time I've done that for ages, actually. I used to go all over the world, you know, I would go to Colombia and... Brazil and Mexico and um, all different places in Africa. I would set books anywhere and everywhere, New Zealand, Australia. Uh, But I haven't done that um, for several years. And then suddenly, uh, with this last book, I said, I'm going to, I think this one will work in Sicily. Mm. And we were going to Sicily anyway. And so I kind of refocused my mind on the purpose of going to Sicily. So instead of going for a holiday, I was thinking of how, why do I feel that this is going to be a good place to write? And then of course the characters start to come alive. And yeah, so I, that was great. That's amazing. <laughs> and will you do some writing while you're there so you can actually sort of really get the ambience of it all? Or do you just sort of take notes and good notes so you can use them when you come back? Always notes. Uh, I never write anywhere else. I can't for some reason. Um, I mean, odd lines may come to me. I think, oh, I think I'm that sums that up quite well. By the time I come to put it into the book, it it stands out, you know, mm-hmm. like a lemon. But um, it's it, it gets my head thinking about what where I was when I first wrote it, when I wrote that, and I don't know who. I was thinking about, you know, which of the characters I was thinking about. And, um, you know, I have notes now um, about the character that I will be introducing into a new book. Um, Whether or not I will use those notes when I do come to introduce him, I don't know, but they're good to have there. And do you write at the desk where I'm speaking to you now? Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Mm, Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So very finely, Susan, your tips and advice. Now, look, 
there's a lot to ask you here because, I mean, obviously you are doing something you love. You've created a, a life that's just incredible doing something you love, seeing the world. But not only that, you've had other next chapters in the fact that you did go to France, you went to California and then you found love after 50, which is lots of people would say that you yeah, can't Yeah, but I'm quite that. old. That's why I've got all that. Well, yeah. I, Susan, you are not old and you absolutely do not look old. I mean, that is for certain. But... um. I mean, what would be your advice if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, if they think they're too old, if they th- if someone's listening, they're oh, you know, and this is they're starting to make their the, sort of the wheels turn and think, you know, they they're for whatever it is, they're doing a job they don't really like, or they perhaps haven't found somebody that they like, or any different any difference, but where you that feeling of feeling stuck and actually my life is not as I would really like it to be. And I think there's something more. What would you first of all say to that person would be the first thing that they could start do to try and get them start getting themselves out of that stuck rut? Oh, try a bit of cosmic ordering, I guess. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> write a note. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you're, that's a better question for uh, somebody with some kind of psychology um, degrees. But um, it, it's, I, I think what's really important is if, I, I can only speak for writing, um, but I guess maybe it goes across most disciplines, that if you really want to do something in the creative world, you just have to do it. And and the great thing now, I mean, you know this because you, you have done it yourself. The great thing now is you can just write onto a computer and it can just be anything mm. because you can change it all so easily mm. or you can just delete it or you can add to it. Whatever you want to do, just get something onto the page. Prior to that, though, I think is... I mean, the story is king. You've always got to have a good story to tell and then the right characters to tell it. So it's good to think, what is the story you want to tell? Now, if you want to write crime, then it would be a really good idea to, and I'm sure people who want to write crime do read loads and loads of crime novels. Same goes for historical novels. Same would go for domestic noir, for whatever genre you want to write in, the best thing is to read a lot of that genre, to find who you, uh, who you would like to emulate in some ways. And, and I mean, I find one of the most inspirational times that I have is when I'm reading, mm. when I'm reading other authors. And I, I could be reading any genre. It'll just be, you know, I just find other authors incredibly inspirational. So I think reading is, is really important and let your, characters your story form and then just go for it just go just to see now not everyone can do it that I mean you know the tale of everybody's got a novel inside of them well that could well be true but not everybody can tell it um so I think if you really burn to write if it's something you really want to do you probably can do it Mm. you probably can and it's just having the confidence um, to, yeah, to, to put your thoughts, your feelings, everything that you believe about your story to get it down there, to, to let your characters speak back at you so that they will take you on this journey through this story. 
And do you, Susan, of somebody that's been doing this for, for so long and has had so much success, but do you ever have moments of doubt at all? And if you do, how do you overcome those? Well, I have them all the time. Um, and it's usually they're brought on by tiredness. Um, I sometimes they, I find myself going off on a, a real tangent about something. And I think, what, what, you know, what's going on here? And and again, it'll probably be something to do with tiredness that I'm trying too hard, or I'm trying to bring in something that actually doesn't fit, to just let it go. Um, that so letting things go, story points go that you think, oh God, that's so brilliant. I think I'll write that bit in, and then it doesn't work. Just let it go. Um, it might be that it can be used later. You're trying to put it in the wrong place. And I remember when I was writing a class apart, this is the first time that I had the experience of, of characters actually seeming to speak to me. And I, I it was a, a scene towards the end of the book and I was absolutely determined this uh, bloke and, and, and this, it was gonna have sex with this woman. And that's what, this was all going to happen in this swimming pool and do you know i could not write that scene i just could not write it and i so i left it alone i just left it alone went to work so i was still at 10 so i went to work a couple of days later i remember i was sitting at my desk saying okay so what do you want to do and they actually just got in a car and drove home mm. and and he dropped her off and he went home so it didn't ha- and it was all wrong so I really, I, you know, I took guidance, if you like, from the characters because by then they were pretty well established because it was quite near the end of the book. Um, and I was trying to make them do something that wasn't right for them. And I wasn't very experienced in any way. It was my first book. Um, so if you feel you're forcing something, just take a step back. I call it the teapot way of thinking. So. You imagine you've got a tea, you pour hot water on your tea leaves and then you, and then it's like you're pouring out the tea but you're pouring it too fast so it all clogs up. And if you just bring the teapot back and swish those leaves around a bit and swish your thoughts around, it'll all loosen up and start to come. Oh, Susan, that applies to so many things, not just writing. So oh, yeah, really absolutely. That. Yeah, that's my little teapot theory. Oh, well, your tea, they, I mean, I thought there's not a better way to end. Thank you so much, Susan. A teapot theory. I was going to actually bring it back to rosé, but not tea, and say that if we ever do meet for rosé, would you promise me you'll wear a hat? <laughs> no. Oh, <laughs> I might have to rethink well, that now, Susan. <laughs> I, I was a twat then. I'm trying not to be No, now. you weren't. No, you weren't. I bet you look lovely. But look, Susan Lewis, I mean, I could talk to you for so long. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful, wonderful guest on the next chapter. Thank you. Thank you very much. So there you are. What did you think of that? I mean, I loved that. I mean, all of it. We had Benny Hill, Morecambe and Wise, George Clooney, Noel Edmonds. We had it all. I love that. If you really want to do something, well, you know, you just have to do it. Like Susan says, it's just about having the confidence. But look, if you're having a wobble, just remember, I'm here. Susan's here. All my next chapter guests are here. We are all behind you. 
So, to learn more about Susan and her wonderful books, you can find her at susanlewis.com. The link is in the show notes. To find out more about me and my books, and I would so love it if you kept in touch, I'm at elliebarkerwrites.com. If you could rate and review this episode, well, that would be marvellous and may even help someone else with their next chapter. But in the meantime, I'll be back next week. So go on, give it a go. I think you can do it. And Susan does too. Speak soon.